This week on Hacker and the Fed, it's Hector and I's favorite topic, answering listener questions. Hector describes what a red teamer does. We talk about the FBI working with other law enforcement agencies, personal cybersecurity habits, and protecting children on the Internet. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks. Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a Red Teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. How's it going tonight, Hector? It's going very well. It's been a fun day. Um, a lot of interesting um, scenarios and life and work. And as, as you can imagine, it's been busy. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, things are good. I went into the office today and uh, saw the Ooh. guys. So always fun to uh, stop by Naxo and see what's going on there. What's going on over there in the Naxo offices? Tell me about it. Give me give me an idea of, of like the, the ambiance. Uh, we had some cases. It's always fun. We have a refrigerator with beers in it if anybody wants to come by and have a beer. So always, always fun. We had a, a guest come by talking to us about a new case and a new opportunity. So fun to hear about that. Well, let me ask you a question. This might be uh, too personal, but what kind of beer? Um, we got a whole bunch of stuff. We got some Sierra Nevada. We got some Modelo's. We got one more. I can't think of it. But th- those are the two I like. I, I enjoy a nice Modelo. I really have gotten into the Mexican lagers. Uh, Pacifico mm. being my number one, but that's, uh, that's me. So, but normally it's summertime. I like a nice uh, summertime sitting out on the porch. Sure. Uh, and have a nice uh, cerveza. Yeah, no, you can't go wrong with that. Definitely not with Modelo or Pacifico. I, I, uh, I myself am a fan of, of some nice German beer. There used to be a really good spot where I used to live at um, in the Lower East Side called Zoom Schneider. And unfortunately, it went out of business with COVID. But I used to go there, brother, and sit down after work or before work, depending on timing. And Seven o'clock my... in the morning? Wow. Well, no. Remember, sometimes I used to work <laughs> I, overnights, right? I know. I was kidding. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I would sit there and, and you know hit up, the, hit up Zoom Schneider like 8, 9 o'clock and start blasting down Aventinas. Aventinas oh. tastes like bubble gum or something. But, bro. It hits you, all right? Did they have good uh, bar food there? Is it oh, German bar food or just regular yes. bar food? Yes, they had. They had you know all the different sausages. I mean, you name it. It was it's basically like a German restaurant with a lot of beer. That sounds good. I'm sorry they lo- they we lost them to COVID. That's uh, it's a shame. Yeah, there was another great restaurant that I loved that went down as well. Was it was called Odessa, and Odessa was dope. That was on Avenue A. And 7th Street, 6th Street. I used to go there at 2, 3 in the morning after a nice long hacking session just for their pierogies, my friends. I can kill a nice pierogi. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, pierogies <laughs> are delicious. Let me tell you something. When you're hacking and it's like 3, 4 in the morning, you take a walk down the block, you get some nice crispy pierogies, man. Yo, it changes your whole life. I thought the cliche was Mountain Dew. What do you mean pierogies? Mountain Dew? That's some, <laughs> that's some shit you see in the movies, brother. Hell no. <laughs> You didn't wear a black hoodie, have ones and zeros fall down behind your head and drink Mountain Dew all night? <laughs> no, definitely not. Oh, that's a shame. I was more of a Pepsi and pierogi guy. Oh, all right. Well, I don't know how well they mix, but the, separately, Pepsi and pierogies are delicious. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, we got a great episode this week. Uh, we're going to finally answer some questions. We're getting a lot of questions coming in uh, at questions at hackerinthefed.com if you have any questions. But we got a lot, so we decided to pick out some. And we are going to jump in and start answering some. Are you excited about that? Ooh, Q&A. It sounds like a proffer session. Somewhat. It's uh, probably a little less painful. (laughs) That's right. Our first question is from Theodora. Uh, She wrote, hi, Chris and Hector. You've talked about prior to the announcement of Hector's arrest, a number of different people had been trying to dox him with various degrees of accuracy. 
Were you worried that this proliferation of docs would either compromise Hector's effectiveness as an informant because it seemed increasingly implausible that he had been arrested or put him in physical danger? Well, there was a lot of worries. So uh, at before Hector was arrested, there was a lot of doxing coming out on him. Some was right, some was wrong, and it added to his, you know, credibility of, uh, you know, the mystic, the mystical Sabu, whether you know we lived in Brazil or where he was. The concern there, obviously, is physical danger. The FBI would never want to put something in danger. Um, so you know, it's that that brings a lot of you know liability, and you know, don't know what want to see anybody get hurt. So prior to his arrest, we're a little concerned about that stuff. But also for evidence preser- preservation, Hector running. Um, you know, this is, remember at this time I only know him as Sabu. I don't know Hector. I only know Sabu, and that's kind of I'm worried about that. Uh, Sabu running, not not so much Hector. Uh, but then, yeah, for the eight months that he and I sat side by side and worked together most days, yeah. So the doxing, the the bad ones helped. The real ones, you know, made us worry. You know, I think at one point we moved you a couple times, Hector, um, just because we were a little worried about your address being out there and people trying to harm you and get to you. And then we definitely moved you before it became public. Um, We did not want Hector to be at his public address when that stuff came out. Uh, People in his neighborhood could have harmed him. Uh, People could have just been, you know, gawking and wanted to go by and bother him and we didn't need any of that see you know who knows how you know i don't think any of us really understand what it would be like if someone was constantly walking by your house and you know gawking at you you know it could be you know it could stir your emotions and you never know what's going to happen so um you know all those concerns were, were certainly you know worried about did you have a sense of, of worry on any of that hector no well not with the people not with the neighborhood i mean that was my hood you know those are people that i knew it's funny that the only concern that uh, any of us ever had, at least I didn't, I did, were were journalists. And oh man, the journalists were out like, like, like uh, hound dogs. Well, I mean, it's a gripping story. I mean, they want to, you know, they've written books about it. And obviously, they're making a movie about it and all that. Um, you know, so I understand why the journalists were there, but. There were a few journalists that even the FBI had spoken with, um, you know, and said, you know, we, we will try to help you with your story once we go public and all that. Uh, if you could just keep this down. But they still hounded you. Um, they sounded your family members. And, and I really lost a lot of respect for some of them because of that. There was one in particular that like went down to the kids school and was like harassing the kids. He was an extremely disgusting individual. And then he got mad at all of us for the fact that, you know, he, he, he couldn't speak to children. You know, that was a weird experience that i had to deal with but yes no did i feel like I, I was in danger or anything not not so much uh it was just a prodding from random journalists it was kind of weird do you think that the doxing affected uh how effective you were on a line maintaining the sabu character well that, that is a good question i think that the sabu character well by the time that the docs started pointing to like hector montague at you know at, at, at that building where i lived at by then, I felt like things were wrapping up. Maybe that's maybe I, I'm, I'm wrong on that. I'm not sure if you agree with that. But I felt like, you know, we kind of hit a wall. Things were slowing down. And, and it, that all came at the very end. Like right before, we went, you know, the, you guys went public or the, the, the media went public. But yeah, no, it was, it was definitely an interesting experience to deal with. I think that what, what I found the most interesting from that whole experience was, uh, you know, how much you cared. You, you did definitely care. And, you know, you, you made you made adjustments and, and, and you did what you had to do to, to make sure that I was all right. And I appreciate that. But specifically, I appreciated the the effort uh, from the Fed side to make sure that the, the kids were OK. Because that, that was a big thing for me. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm a grown man. I could defend myself. But uh, two little children being harassed, that's a different story. Yeah, that was certainly on the line. Um, yeah, and anything we could have done, you know, we tried to do the best we could. Obviously, you know, with the First Amendment, it's tough for the FBI going around telling journalists to to not do something. But just talking to him as human beings and explaining the situation with the kids, you know, hopefully that they would uh, act upon that. So, um, what? Sorry, Hector. One thing I, I wanted to bring up, and and obviously, if we don't, you don't want to talk about this, then then our great producer Phineas can cut it out. But um, we found out this week who uh, who AV Unit was, and for those that don't know, um, I went on the Lex Friedman podcast and and had did a 
interview with him a couple months ago and a lot of good feedback. But one of the themes was that, you know, AV unit was the one of Lulsec that got away. Well, I found out this week and, and Hector, I mean, I, I, I think he found out too who it was. I don't know. I don't know. What are your feelings on that one? Well, listen, I always go back to attribution. It's difficult. You know, there are a lot of people that, that knew who that person was. And they, they're, they're part of a tight-knit community. And, you know, it, it's people talk, right? Loose, loose lips sink ships. Now, the, the good thing for that person is enough time has passed. And I don't think there's – and you can confirm that if, if, if you can – yeah, I think enough time has passed. Like statute of limitations have been hit. I don't think that person is a person of interest at all. But I would, I would love to hear their perspective at some point. Yeah, no, I'm not a lawyer. I can't tell you what what statute of limitations exist or anything like that. As far as that goes, I can't give any advice on those things. I know for a fact that when I when I left the FBI, there was not an arrest warrant for AV Unit. Um, not even in like the pseudo name AV Unit or in the person's real name. So I don't think that person has anything to worry about. I don't think anyone's looking into that case. No one's called me to ask me who AV Unit was, except for Lex Friedman and all the, 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 the stuff after that came after that uh, going on the on the show. So I think that person's okay. Uh, I don't think that they're going to be arrested. I don't think anyone's going to be looking for them for something that happened that long. And this ever gets back to AV Unit, and that person wants to come on Hacker and the Fed, there they're welcome to come on and and discuss the issue. Uh, but I can assure them that, that as far as I'm aware, there's no you know arrest warrant or anything like that waiting for them. Well, I don't know, man. You sound like, you sound like a honeypot right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, 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 it's true. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'd love to have any member of Lulsec, uh come on the show and kind of explain their situation from that time period. So uh, any member that wants to come on, the, they have an open invitation. And they can, they know how to get rid of hold of us. I mean, look, before we started recording, we were talking about films that we liked. And, you know, the thing that I have to say is that, from, from the films that I mentioned to you so far, what I really liked was the stories and, and kind of hearing the other person's perspective. So, yeah, definitely. Even those that were critical of me, by all means, if you're interested, hop on. I'm always open to hearing the other side's perspective. Yeah, that, that, I think that's something you've brought to my life. Um, I think you've kind of always had that as part of you. And, you know, I never, you know, had that as, you know, it was black and white when I was a young man. But since you've come into my life, I, you know, if I was arguing with my wife or, um, you know, someone says some shitty thing that I don't like or you get into a, you know, a little tiff or something, I try to see it from their perspective. Um, or if I think someone's completely wrong, I look at, I try to, you know, I, I lay back and I, I and swim at night before I go to sleep and I try to think about their side of the, the story. And uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you bringing that to my life. Well, I'm, I'm glad that's some, I'm glad I was able to pass something your way. Like that's um, that's something I learned a long time ago. And you know, even when you start reading, just bear with me, audience. I'm about to get very cliched, okay? But but when you read like the Art of War, for example, there's a lot of passages in there about knowing your enemy and understanding who they are and what their perspective is. Uh, you can't just go into battle blind, right? You can't just go into battle expecting. To win, the goal is to win before you get into battle. Now, I don't consider these people my enemies. I'm using that as an example. You know, the idea is you want to be able to understand the perspective because if you're wrong, you want to be able to catch yourself. And for a long time, since I was self-taught, I, I didn't have a formal education. I came from the streets. I was I had I had confidence issues in in my communication at times. So if if I'm in a conversation with someone that's like that's heading into a debate. You know, I'm either going to engage it or fall back and come back later because I want to study and learn and understand better rather than, you know, making myself sound like a fool in a, in a conversation. Right. So but anyways, definitely open to to hearing other perspectives. And, you know, that story, that whole low sec era to me is interesting because we all had our own individual stories. And sometimes when I hear other people's perspectives from that era, including those that were in law enforcement or in threat intel, or in cybersecurity, InfoSec, I'm always kind of amazed at what their thoughts were during that era. One of the most interesting stories or responses that I got was from a uh, threat intel professional, someone in threat intelligence, that was upset that I had been caught and then I had decided to work with you. And so I'm sitting there scratching my head. I'm like, well, you're in threat intelligence, and part of your job is trying to ascertain attack paths and the identity of potential actors. I mean, essentially, 
your job entails investigating people and more than likely passing it to the FBI anyway. So why exactly were you upset that I got arrested and decided to work with Chris? So yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, you're saying that I was thinking about, you know, I, I would love to hear the perspective of some of the other FBI agents, like the ones around the country that was looking into LulzSec and how they were pissed that, you know, maybe, um, you know, I was the one that arrested you and not them. You know, I know there was other, you know, field offices that tried to pin major hacks on you uh, because of that, you know, because of uh, some of the stuff they, they thought they could get away with. So I, I don't know. It was it'd be interesting to hear that, that those perspectives from me, from the other law enforcement that was looking at LulzSec. Well, well, Chris, you got to make it happen, brother. You got to find somebody. Well, I got plenty. I don't know if they they still be willing to come on the show, so we'll see. <laughs> I got you. Hopefully, that answers your question, uh, Theodora. We kind of went a long ways to get there, but but yes, we were very concerned about Hector's physical danger. Less worried about the case, uh, but but also it was a concern, operational concern. So, Hector, we got a next question from uh, Allison in Charleston. She wrote, uh, "Oh, this is interesting." She says, Hello, Mr. Tarbell and Sabu. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting greeting to us. Uh, she says, thank you for including me on your podcast on February 16th, 2023. So I guess this is a second question from old Allison in Charleston. Um, she writes, each week, Chris says that Hector is a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. What is a red teamer? Hector, I think since it's you, I think you're probably the best one to explain that. <laughs> That's a great question. I love it. Like I said in previous episodes, a lot of the terminology – um and and even like vernacular and and phrases or terms or whatever you want to call it had come from the military in the military you have several different teams and those different teams have different objectives when i worked with uh a company out of sweden gothenburg this was back in the mid 2000s we had named our company a tiger team so I'll give you an example of what a tiger team is, and then we kind of go into the different uh, different groups. So a tiger team would be an, an offensive team. Their entire purpose, at least from the military perspective, is that you know they would have uh, or they would be given an objective. Can you compromise this military base or installation? You know you're free to use uh, all these different rules of engagement, or, or rather, you have to follow these rules of engagements, which would include. In some cases, you know, go all out, right? Uh, with the exception of obviously shooting or hurting, killing anyone along the way. But some objectives, as an example, would be, well, can you circumvent uh, uh, physical security controls? Can you compromise elements of operational security for that installation? Once in, are you able to extract uh, data or media that could be used uh, as evidence, and so you would have these tiger teams uh, essentially attacking military bases or installations or targeting policy. Now, let's apply that to cybersecurity. And, and by the way, red team also exists within the military as well. And it's essentially the same thing. There are some nuances, very small nuances with, you know, as we go into cybersecurity, a red teamer is someone that works on the offensive side and their purpose, uh, you know, aside from following the rules, engagements and objectives is to be able to act as the adversary and, in essence, be the adversary, attempt to compromise uh, a, a scope. In the case of cybersecurity or InfoSec, it would be, well, you have access to these five domains and any DNS records associated with those domains and any employee within those domains, and you can target them at will with the exception of causing denial of service or, um, you know, stealing X, Y, and Z sensitive information, right? As you're working as an adversary or a red teamer, your goal is to identify gaps and weaknesses in that organization's security posture. Um, and if you want to use even more plain English, the idea is to identify an entry point or a method, an action, anything that would allow the bad actor to compromise the target. On the flip side of that, you have something called a blue team or blue teamers. And essentially, these are the defensive operators. These are folks that actually work at the organization or by means of a third party, like a, like a, a SOC, SOC, a security operations center, or a managed service provider. And these are folks that will sit there and their entire job, I'm sure it goes you know, way beyond what I'm about to explain here, is to defend or rather detect, defend, and mitigate. 
They're also looking for logs of compromise. They're looking for potential incidents that they can report. And their goal is not only to, to find an attack in real time or evidence of one, but also to defend the environment against those attacks. Okay. Now, in the case of an actual compromise, let's say a, a major company gets or, or a corporation gets compromised and there is maybe a, a ransomware uh, a scenario that takes place, then the blue team would have to be responsible, assuming that, you know, assuming that uh, the policies are in place, the members of the blue team would then be part of incident response and recovery. And so when the FBI is called in or some other law enforcement agency around the world is called in, more than likely, there are already investigations that have taken place and there are reports available for law enforcement officers once they arrive at the location. So that's what a blue team is. Now, there is an engagement type called purple teaming. And that is when you have an adversary who's simulating or emulating a real world attack and you have blue teamers or defenders actively trying to stop those attacks. So both the red teamers and the blue teamers are working in tandem with each other to, um, to, to not only identify potential attack paths, but also mitigate those uh, potential attack paths. One key positive for a purple team engagement is to, to kind of analyze the response time of the blue teamers in a real-world um, attack path scenario or campaign. When a company hires a red team to help them, obviously they probably use their internal, let's say they have a, you know, a defense team or, you know, cybersecurity professionals there that will blue team. Does this purple teaming happen on the real network or does it happen in a development network or, or how does that work? Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic question. So from my personal experience, each engagement I've ever done that's on the purple team side where I'm working in tandem uh, or in collaboration with the blue team has been on production environments in real time. We're probably on a Zoom call together or we're both aware of each other's actions for the day, okay? There's some sort of collaboration, whether it's a phone call in the morning and a phone call at, at, at the evening, you know, kind of determining start and date, uh, end times. Okay. When it comes down to a purple team, is more, more interesting because, you know, there is the potential not only to validate your technical controls and see whether or not they work or you have gaps, but also to identify potential gaps in your defensive policy, right? If I'm breaking into a system on your internal network, and it's a production network, it's a very real network, and I'm able to get in through uh, SMB relaying using uh, some sort of, you know, maybe we've identified a host in the network that does not have a, a SMB signing enabled, for example, and we're able to relay that connection over to a vulnerable host with a vulnerable service that we can take advantage of. If I'm able to compromise that asset using that attack path and the blue team is completely unaware, then at that point, we either stop and halt and investigate or we move forward and keep notes and timestamps to make sure that the defense team could uh, do an investigation post-compromise. Okay. Now, there's other ways that these teams can both work together. And Chris, you know this, you have tabletop exercises, you have uh, cyber ranges, and a lot of these could be outside the realm of a production environment. So I hope I answered your question, Chris. Uh, you did. I think you answered Allison from Charleston's question too. Thanks, Hector. When do you have insights into your compliance, security, and risk postures? It's a great question. If it's right before an audit, you're on the same boat as many other organizations. With Drata, G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, you have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk, security controls, and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2, ISO 2701, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Notion, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it has been to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Now, here's where it gets cool, guys. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed can get 10% off Drata and waived implementation fees at drata.com slash partner 
slash hacker dash bed. Again, drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to encourage people to invest in themselves. BetterHelp wants to make sure everyone has easy, affordable, and private access to high-quality therapy. Since 2013, over 30,000 licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists from BetterHelp's network have helped more than 2 million people face life's challenges and improve their mental health. As I was going through the paperwork today for BetterHelp, I got a text from my wife. She asked me how my day was going, and I answered her truthfully, and I just said, blah. You know, that's really how I felt. It was really the only word or the sound that I could think of that described my feelings. I was just feeling blah. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that blah was kind of the way I was described my life in the last few days. I just not good, not bad. It was just blah. So I signed up for BetterHelp. I'm excited about moving forward. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. The initial process of signing up was really easy for me. Uh, and I've already been matched with a therapist. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I'm excited about this process and really happy to partner with BetterHelp on the podcast. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash H-A-T-F today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash H-A-T-F. All right, Hector, our next question is from Justin. Justin wrote, my question is about the FBI and ASIO working together. And so I had to look up ASIO, and it stands for the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. And uh, it says that it's the uh, Australian National Security Agency responsible for the protection of the country and its citizens from espionage, sabotage, acts of foreign interference, politically motivated violence, attacks in on Australian defense system and terrorism. Uh, so that's ASIO. Um, it was just the news of, that about two tons of cocaine busted off the coast of Western Australia was a joint effort between the two agencies. How often do you, do they work together? Have you ever had dealings with our spy agency and Hector, have you ever hacked into anything in Australia? All right, a lot of questions there. So I specifically have never worked with the ASIO. Um, it sounds like, if I was to guess, that uh, two tons of cocaine, probably a tip came in somehow to the FBI, or the FBI got some information that there was about to be two tons of co cocaine going in. Um, they reached out to their counterparts in Australia, uh, and the Australians you know, took the action there. Um, there's also FBI agents that are stationed in Australia uh, at the various law enforcement agencies. You know, the information could have flowed that way. But it definitely to me, you know, just based on what I've seen in the news and all this is that the FBI got a tip. ASIO acted upon it and ASIO gave some of that credit of the case going down to the FBI, which is, uh, you know, a good way of uh, uh, of working together. And I have worked with Australian law enforcement. Uh, one of the system administrators that was part of the Silk Road investigation, we arrested four of them after the case went down, and one of them was in Australia. Um, unfortunately, uh, because my interaction, I had to stay in the States, and I arrested a guy down in uh, Virginia for that, and uh, I sent a great agent, a guy named Mitch. Uh, he got to go to Australia. And so uh, he brought me back some... Uh, crocodile jerky and kangaroo jerky um which you know as a jerk you think i'd like jerky um, <laughs> but uh but neither one of those were very good so sorry for the guys in australia but for justin's question for you hector have you ever hacked into anything in australia i'll be honest with you i may have compromised something maybe nothing related to the government and i'm, I'm glad i i, I did it honestly because I, I would love to visit australia one day and i uh the one <laughs> thing handcuffs yeah, that's the thing. I don't want to. I don't want to end up in handcuffs. So, so the answer to your question is no. I did not compromise anything in Australia, and I'm looking forward to visiting at some point in the future. Let me ask you just about that. You made me think of it because of the the drastic time difference between New York and and Australia is that a good thing or a bad thing for compromising systems that w in such a, a different time time zone? 
back in the days when I was a bad actor, and I'm sure bad actors do this to this day. They just still evolves, and I mean, rather, they probably still have this as part of their methodology. But I used to try to compromise hosts that were the opposite of my time zone. The idea would be that, you know, if I were to to be doing some hacking engagements during the day, then at some point, you know, it would be evening at at the Target's location. And, um, you know, the, the hope is that the administrators or security teams are offline sleeping, it's evening, et cetera. But nowadays it's much different. You have 24-hour, you know, 24-7 SOC teams. You have SOC analysts. You have third parties from all over the world that are monitoring logs. So it's not really relevant anymore. But back then, yes, I would target um, – I would focus on targets that were either opposite time zone of me or I would hack late at night and then, you know, try to – try to sneak in through early morning engagements. So the answer is yes, absolutely. So our next question is from Brian. Uh, Brian writes, uh, I'm interested in privacy and cybersecurity on a personal level. While I'm not any sort of high-value target, and I doubt that anyone has interest in obtaining my data specifically, I do remain conscious of network connections while banking, etc. I'm using a VPN, password manager, generated passwords, none of the passwords being reused. Uh, beyond that, I don't really know what else to do. Uh, I don't deal in crypto, so there are no assets to secure there. Uh, what are some good basics to use in my daily life? Phone encryption? Anything specific? What can we do to offer to help Brian? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it seems like Brian has a limited attack surface, which is a good thing. I would say the the minimal you can go, the better. But there's a, there's a couple of problems here, right? Uh, we see that Brian's using cloud services. For, for example, VPN, you could theoretically run your own VPN at home and you can theoretically access the, access the VPN from your phone outside of your home. Yes, it requires some steps. Yeah, you may have to get some hardware, but I never recommend anyone to use VPN or Tor for anything personally sensitive or sensitive to you. Yeah, if you want to navigate to a website and get a show off of Netflix or whatever, it is what it is. But for banking, no. You don't want to use a cloud-hosted VPN run by another person sitting at a data center in a different country. Can you explain why? Yeah, because you know, whenever you're using a service that below, that's basically run and managed and owned by someone else, well, you're basically using their computer to log into your bank account, using Brian's example here. So if you're using a VPN that has U.S. servers but the company itself and their administrators are registered in Russia, then at that point, you're opening up yourself to man-in-the-middle attacks from adversaries at that Russian organization. That, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting an emphasis on Russia. We could change that to, uh, uh, to Iceland. So now you're opening yourself up to man-in-the-middle attacks uh, of these operators in Iceland, right? So you know, I, I don't want to focus on any one specific country, but I'm trying to give you examples. Now, if you trust those organizations and those administrators, then it is what it is. But still, you don't want to use a, a cloud-hosted VPN service provided by people that you do not know and you may not trust. You know, you could use it for other things like watching YouTube or watching websites or going to websites from, from different countries to kind of circumvent some sort of geofencing, right? Or it's, it's also good to use while you're traveling. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I, yeah, I agree with you. Stay away from like banking and, and you know, very sensitive uh, type things. But it is a more secure connection than just an open, you know, uh, coffee shop uh, internet access point. Oh, yeah, I agree. And there are folks on Twitter all the time that say, look, something is better than nothing. And I agree. If you are traveling and you're about to hit a hotel or a coffee shop somewhere overseas from where you're from, and all they're offering you is plain text, you know, uh, a weak encryption, Wi-Fi access. And yes, a VPN works. It's better than nothing. It kind of goes back to our conversation about MFA and SMS, right? We all know that SMS is, is you know, it's is unreliable security-wise, but it's better than just getting, a, you know, a no, no multi-factor authentication whatsoever. Um, so, yes, I agree with you, uh, Chris. But if you're home and you're home using a VPN on a third party, logging into your bank, it's not a good idea. And the same could apply for like an online password manager. I myself, I've used Bitwarden. I like it a lot, but I use Bitwarden in a different way. I don't use the cloud hosted version. I have uh, a device here on my home network that's segmented into this own little channel um, or portion of its network. And that device runs Bitwarden. 
And that's it. That's all it does. If I need to access that device or that Bitwarden instance, then I would be able to over my secure tunnel if I have to, if I'm traveling. So yes, I think with, with latest news and recent events, a lot of different compromises we've read about in the news, I would say that any credentials that are highly sensitive in nature probably should not be hosted on a third-party service unless you truly trust them and you're willing to take the risk. I would say part of what improves your overall security posture, your, your overall security program, or if you're an individual, your operational security, is you know risk assessments and being able to analyze whether or not it's worth to take the risk and what's the worst case scenario if that service is compromised. So just some food for thought. Now, I have some other ideas, okay? Make sure your phones are updated. Make sure all your apps are updated. Make sure that as you're including more and more devices to your network, you start to take advantage of segmentation. These are all things we talk about all the time. Oh, and this is a great one. Back in the days, wearers and cracking shareware and sharing cracked software was a big thing. And I wouldn't be surprised and in some parts of the world it still is. But you have to remember that once you start installing software on your machine that was cracked or compromised by someone else, now you're basically inviting yourself to be compromised as well because you have no idea what kind of malware is embedded in some of these cracks. So food for thought for the audience here. Yeah, and also, you know, Brian didn't bring it up, but uh, I also bring up, you know, physical security. Um, you know, think about if you when you're traveling and going through an airport or if you, you know, somehow leave your laptop behind Think about, you know, like full disk encryption. If you're running uh, Windows, you know, put BitLocker on it, you know. Uh, so if you do lose your laptop, you know, someone can't get into your data. The, the disk is encrypted. You know, there's a lot of good physical security, you know, you know, around just keeping your device. You know, you talk about phone encryptions. Phone these days are pretty good. Either, there's not a really a good way of cracking into like an iPhone, you know, if you don't have the password. You know, it's going to get wiped after so many devices and, and tracking. They don't have the same thing on laptops. Uh, there's a lot of laptops on the market these days that are not default setted, set, have, don't have default settings to, you know, offer you the same protections as your iPhone. So think about that. Um, another thing that, Brian, you brought up that I'm going to disagree with is that you say, I doubt that anyone has interest in obtaining my data. That's not true. You do have banking. Um, you do have, you know, there is a, you know, people do want to get access to anyone. Um, cyber criminals are very opportunistic and want to get access to anything they can get their hands on. You might be, you know, it might be as, as small as like using your computer as a hot point, meaning that they break into your system and they sit on your network and they use your network as the place they jump off to commit crime. And then if, you know, when cyber investigators work their way back, uh, your house gets a uh, search warrant executed on it at six in the morning because we think you're the one doing it. Um, so, you know, simple things like that. Everyone on the internet has a responsibility uh, to take security seriously. Um, so I, I don't really like hearing when someone says that that people don't have an interest in obtaining their data or getting into their systems. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that point. Think about it like this. If an adversary, if a bad actor wants to compromise a specific corporation, even if it's a smaller law firm, and it just so happens that you work at that law firm, what do you think is going to happen? The attacker may not compromise the law firm directly. They might try to go through you. I mean, we saw that in a, in a recent breach, you know, we, we, we may have discussed in one of the previous episodes where, you know, developers were compromised in order for the adversaries to kind of get access to uh, a large a treasure trove of information. The same applies with you as well. Yeah, a couple of weeks back, Brian, we covered the NSAs, the United States National Security Agencies. They put out like a cyber checklist of like good behavior, uh, both on your network and activities that you personally do while online. Um, go through and double check that you're following all those. You know, it's a really good checklist to go through and, and make sure, you know, everything's up, uh, up to date and, uh, and you're practicing all those behaviors. That's right. So. Hector, the next question comes from Brian, different spelling. This is Brian with an I-A-N instead of a Y. Um, he says, uh, I'm a listener from Argentina, very nice, and a back-end developer. I have very limited experience in information security, but I've always wondered why there are practices like key stretching, hashing and salting, which does not appear to be used as a de default in the industry for storing passwords. Do you think that it makes a lack of risk awareness on part of the software developers? Or is there some disadvantages to doing this kind of implementation that prevents this practice from being wide, becoming widespread? 
Ah, Wunderbar. This is a great question. I probably mispronounced that, Wunderbar. <laughs> no, but this is a great question. I'll tell you why. For a long time, there were um, developers that were just not aware or security conscious. They did not have, quote unquote, uh, security DNA or hygiene that's, um, that's, that's, you know, that's required if you're deploying applications that will be accessible to potential adversaries. I think things have changed. And you're right, Brian, a lot of organizations, a lot of developers, you, you may still see them using MD5 hashing or using something as ridiculous as DES, right? DES, data encryption standard. You might have some that uh, some developers that may not even salt their passwords, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it, it's, it's, it's crazy all across the board. But here's what I'm saying. A lot of developers are also incorporating DevOps and DevOps security. Um, they're using tools like static analysis tools, um, interactive assessment tools. There's some great, great, uh, I would say, development tools out there that incorporate security processes and plugins and uh, flows that have vastly improved uh, the kind of applications that go out there, you know, prior to deployments, they're being audited. And that's fantastic. And a big shout out to some of these big companies that have been pushing for uh, a position called DevOps Security Manager. And these guys are basically developers with, you know, a high level or rather uh, uh, a solid level of security awareness and experience where they're kind of merging both worlds and catching a lot of these issues before they go out. Now, there's something that you did mention here that I found interesting. Um, and that is that your observation is that some developers are not using things or practices like key stretching, uh, hashing with salting, or iterations. Back in the days, and we're talking about 2000s, early 2000s, mid 2000s, and maybe even late, the problem that a lot of folks dealt with is that you know they were still probably living or working from legacy environments. They were probably still self-hosting their servers. They maybe still had some old co-located or managed servers somewhere in some data center. And the CPU resources and capabilities were extremely low or it was expensive to upgrade. Now, here's why I'm telling you all this. The more iterations you add, the more deeper you go into key stretching, um, the slower theoretically it should be for the generation of hashes. And so a lot of developers, because of the fear of, of introducing latency into their applications, they may have avoided key stretching and, and, you know, and, and similar mechanisms altogether. But things are different now. Most web applications that are being developed and being de de deployed are done so on the cloud, whether it's AWS, Google Cloud, Alibaba, you name it, it's there. And the resources, the resource limitations is slowly deteriorating. And uh, I, I do not see why any organization or any developer would avoid key stretching or similar because of, of that issue that I just mentioned, right? It, it's, it's, it's no longer relevant, is my point. So I hope that answers your question, Brian. I think, I think it's a great question, a great couple of questions to, to kind of dive into. A couple of things that struck me, Hector, was that I don't think they're, you know, you have to very be a very mature software developing program to implement security. Well, maybe not implement, but to have the forethought of security. Uh, a lot of these companies don't want to invest in it and don't want to move forward with, you know, it, bringing in security teams uh, because, you know, they kind of hinder things sometimes, you know, and they, they don't, there's not really an incentive sometimes to do it. Um, we did a story a couple of weeks ago about the White House putting out a new cybersecurity like incentive or program or whatever they called it, I forget now. But they said that they might that, that part of that might be putting software developers, you know, more liable um, for not implementing security. Uh, do you think that would play a role in some of this? And do you, do you think that's going to come to fruition? That is a tough question. I'm going to tell you why. There are several different ways to look at this. I'm willing to wager that most applications that are deployed out there um, in, in corporate environments, at the very least corporate environments, are legacy applications. They were probably written in 2005, 1999. They're either written in ASP.NET or .NET or ColdFusion. So you probably had a lot of applications that are still legacy, still running from source codes or, uh, you know, uh, technologies that, you know, are no longer really used these days. And because of that, what you end up having is a scenario where an organization probably does not have the resources or developers to continuously maintain those applications or 
there is no roadmap whatsoever for improving those applications, um, especially if they're not externally accessible. Now, for clients, clients that I have that do run legacy applications externally, and we're doing a web application penetration test, we're looking at all of these issues and reporting them as you know serious, uh, critical. We need to kind of talk about this and figure out you know what are the next steps for your team, because you have an aging infrastructure that's exposing uh, your customers and or employees uh, to a wide variety of different attacks and attack vectors. And that's a problem. Now, going back to your question directly, would would, uh, the government's strategy in cybersecurity start to apply pressure to developers to produce better code? Yes. How is it going to deal with code that's already deployed in legacy? That was my whole point. Well, it's going to be extremely expensive, probably in the billions, for organizations to hire developers and, de- and dedicate their, uh, developer time to start fixing and or rewriting some of these applications. I think this would be a long process. Um, but this is, I would say, a, a warning call to my audience and those of you that have legacy environments or legacy applications deployed. If the government starts implementing some sort of controls or policies or start to modify I would say current policies with, you know, amendments that state that, you know, your code base has to be a certain amount of years or you need a certain amount of pen tests per year um, or there are certain requirements in cryptography that you need to have, then, yeah, you may want to start looking into working on those issues right now rather than waiting for later where you may get, you know, you may get sued by your attorney general or the federal government for exposing millions of, of clients or employees. Um, it's definitely a problem, Chris. And I'm not sure how long it's going to take to really fix it. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's going to take some time. And I'm not sure if regulation is the the right approach, but I mean, that's the uh, normally prescribed solution for the government. So we'll see what happens. The next question comes from Siobhan. She says, hello, Chris and Hector. Uh, I'm a borderline cybersecurity professional. I work in identity. More importantly, I'm a parent of young kids. Uh, They're becoming aware of the internet and interacting with apps online. I feel like my children should start to hear the language of cybersecurity and in particular, having situational awareness online. I would like to ask for any advice you provide to children to help them understand the realities of life online. Yeah, so this is pretty tough, Hector. You know, I I wouldn't want to parent anyone, uh, anyone else's children. Um, So I can kind of just say what, you know, how I do it with my children. My, my kids have a sort of free access to the internet as because they've gotten a little older. Uh, but when they got on there, I put them on their own network. Part of that was to control bandwidth. Uh, I didn't want my stuff to be slowed down too much. But, you know, it also allowed me to go through the logs and see where they were going. You know, all of my kids' emails and text messages uh, came through my wife's phone, you know, a copy of them. So they got to see what was going on. You know, we've kind of gotten rid of that as they've gotten older. But we kept a pretty tight eye what's going on online. One, because, uh, you know, I get a lot of threats online and I didn't want that trickle down to them. But two, you know, I trust but verify. Um, I trust them, but I want to make sure they're doing what's right. You know, a lot of kids these days don't quite understand the consequences of things. I say these days, I think it's been all times, you know, children don't really understand consequences. You know, I have a friend who's had a kid who put some things in Snapchat and that cost them a college scholarship. Uh, because that information got out there. You know, there, there's people don't understand the circumstances of just, you know, online behavior and where it can come from. Um, children also have no idea. And, and a part of them he likes this. They don't understand the threat that can be online. You know, there, there's a lot of places that children can stumble into online that they probably shouldn't be. It's a, much more of an adult situation. Yeah, I think you should, you know, it's a fine line of opening your children's eyes to what's out there. Uh, But I also don't want to take away the innocence of childhood. You know, there's certain things kids just shouldn't know about. Um, You know, what would you prescribe for a parent these days, Hector? Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of those uh, those points that you brought up. And I do agree that that children should be should not be exposed to um, certain things that they, they probably should be seeing later on. Or at the very least, they should have a conversation with their parents, you know, before they even reach that point. You know what I mean? I, I would I would rather speak to my child first about um, something like that rather than them, them finding it themselves. Whether it's, you know, it's looking at, uh, you know, some adult sites or looking at exploit videos or, you know, some of those weird videos where you see people dying. 
like th- these are things that are very serious and that can impact them, especially if they're very young. So I like the idea that Chris proposed or implemented. He segmented his children's network space uh, into his own little island, right? Using segmentation. We talked, we spoke about, uh, spoken about it plenty of times in the past. There are a lot of routers, a lot of tools to help you automate that, or at least give you step-by-step instructions on how to create a segmented environment, kind of like a guest network. Now, the difference is that if you're going to create a segmented network for your children, one idea is to use one of the services, these DNS services that automatically block bad sites, porn sites, um, sites that have exploits on them, um, or have bad reputation, or fail some sort of DNS categorization. These DNS resolvers are out there. They exist. And I think they, they, they do at least uh, a, a solid job at, at get, getting rid of or mitigating some of the low-hanging fruits. But you still have to be kind of on top. You know, you still got to be involved in your children's online activity. You don't have to sit there and babysit every website they go to. But you want to make them aware. Self-awareness is important for these children. But you also, you know, letting them know, listen, there may be some bad sites out there. And they may ask for your information. They may ask for your pictures. But remember, unless you know the person physically face-to-face, you don't really need to be sending anybody pictures, okay? And you should probably set some rules and guidelines. You know, I see that you already provided some guidelines here. Don't share your pictures. Beautiful. Don't give your address, name, um, your, your name or address. Fantastic. And practice to question and practice to say no. A lot of children are not being taught how to say no. I myself, I was raised in a way where I didn't learn to really say no because I always felt bad saying no to someone that I, I cared for or that I liked. It, was, it wasn't until much later in my life that I realized it's okay to say no. So teach your children how to say no. Teach them how to practice questioning and, and definitely keeping their personal information to themselves. Nobody on the internet needs to know where they're at, what their name is, and what they look like. So good stuff. Yeah, and I, I'm sure people listened last week when we had Bill Gardner on. And uh, you know, one thing that maybe didn't come out in that interview, we, he talked about it a little bit, but Hector's passion uh, for teaching children cybersecurity. Really, there's a lot of jobs out there in cybersecurity, and we we need to grow the field. Um, we need there's a, a lot of opportunities. You know, Hector has a, a real passion to want to teach inner city use to, to any really any youth that are, are, are excited about you know being in the field, um, and so I think. You're going to have some exciting things in the future for that, Hector. Uh, I look forward to working with you on that. But, you know, teaching children at a young age cybersecurity uh, is, is a great start. I personally feel that, like, learning a, uh, you know, my kids have to learn foreign languages in school. Uh, I think programming languages should count as that. Uh, so my kid has to take three years of uh, Latin. Uh, he should also, you know, maybe he could take uh, two years of Latin and two years of Python. That's right. No, I, I completely agree. It would be fantastic if our students are given the opportunity, at the very least, the opportunity to participate in classes, whether they're part of the overall uh, curriculum or the extracurricular, where they could study a language, uh, whether it's Python or Bash, or they learn how to use Linux or Unix, um, they understand the fundamentals uh, of operating systems. Yeah, we could get geeky with it, but we don't really have to. You know, we want to be able to give them the opportunity that when they come out of school, they have at least a basic understanding of computing. They have a basic understanding of security fundamentals and they're prepared. That's really what counts here. You know, we had I mean, security, even though the cybersecurity industry is still very young, quote unquote, there's been I've met people that have been in, in some sort of security um, or information security fields or position, you know, going back 30, 40 years. These are folks that you know, we're, we're, you know, building security policies back when Unix was being uh, distributed to different schools and universities. So, you know, I think the big mistake that we did as a society is that as our knowledge base grew, we didn't really share it with these, you know, K, uh, uh, you know, K-12 schools. I would love to do something like that. And Chris, yes, uh, I, I'm, I'll be down to develop something with you and hopefully uh, get some students, you know, involved. Because I think this would be great for the next generation. Yeah, we're going to spin off sometime, hopefully, Hacker and the Feds for schools, for, for, for kids to learn cybersecurity. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be all about that. Oh, yeah. Ryan writes in, uh, hey, Chris and Hector, since uh, listening to you guys, I've been inspired to pursue the networking field and I'm working towards a CCNA uh, through the Cisco materials and YouTube videos. My question is, if you had to pick your top five most important lesson pieces of advice for a newbie in the biz, 
what would they be and why? You can start one, Hector. Well, it's, uh, if you start at one, then uh, I did my math real quick. You have to do three of them. I only have to do two. There you go. I'm, I'm with <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I would say that uh, one of the first things that I, I think is important is that you kind of, I would say you research uh, the cybersecurity landscape because it's very broad. You could be a red teamer like myself. You could be on the defensive side like Chris. You could be in investigations and incident response. It's a very broad field. Pick your path. I would say number two would be networking. Talk to people. Talk to as many people as you can. Get to know. Have them get to know you. Um, follow people online. Follow Twitter accounts. Understand the industry and who's out there. And you know, you, you had you know, it didn't bother you to reach out to Hacker in the Fed with your question and send us. Send anybody that you will talk to you uh, and, and get to know people. You'll find that you know there's a lot of people in cybersecurity. Less people that uh, really matter in cybersecurity. Um, you know, and then just as you know people, um, you know, it's a sort of a community that helps each other. You know, any advice that Hector and I can give to people, we always try to, to give the best advice as possible. Um, know more people, network and and get, get your information out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that one. Number two is fantastic. Um, I would say for number three, once you've kind of picked your path, you know exactly what it is that you want to do. Um, definitely focus on absorbing and ingesting as much information as you can about that field. For example, if you were to decide, hey, I want to be a pen tester or I want to be a red teamer, then there's enough resources online between YouTube and Twitter and mailing lists and all these different sites that you could, um, you know, by yourself without having to spend a ton of money into certification programs or training programs by yourself, almost self-taught with some guidance, you should be able to reach that path or, or reach some sort of conclusion sooner than later. Um, certificates are great. But the, the one thing I'll, I'll kind of point out there is that certificates are not going to teach you what it is that you need in order to succeed in that career path. So definitely absorb as much as you can and like go back to number two after you figured out number one, but go back to number two and network with people within that field. And I promise you it's going to take you very far. Number four would be practice the skills that you learn. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of programming. We programmed in C++. We programmed in Python. We programmed on a lot of different things. Uh, then when I got into the FBI, fewer and fewer times required programming, and it got a little further apart. Now that I'm outside the FBI, I wish I still had that programming skill set. Um, you know, can I you know, kind of make my way through some things once in a while? Yeah, I can if I have to. Um, but I, I just, you know, I don't use it, you know, use it or lose it, I guess is what I'm saying. So keep up those skill sets. If you, if you don't teach yourself to program or anything along those lines, do it once a month, set yourself a calendar reminder to sit down on a, you know, a Sunday afternoon or something and, and write out a program or whatever that skill set is that you want to keep fresh. 100%. And just to add to what Chris has said there, you want to be able to practice what you preach. If you're going to get into the field of cybersecurity, you have to know the fundamentals, Depending on what path you take, whether it's on the defensive side or offensive side, you want to be able to uh, not only absorb all of the information that's out there and practice that stuff, in, 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 at least in theory, but you also have a lot of access to different platforms. If you want to be a pen tester, you have Hack the Box and Try Hack Me and all these different platforms that you, know, you can leverage uh, for free or very cheap um, to practice your skills. So that'll leave us with number five at this point. So number five, my personal opinion is that, you know, once you get to a point where you feel that you've, you've absorbed what you could, you feel that you've taken the certs that are necessary for your career path, you feel that you have practiced and, you know, you have a good understanding of, of where you're at. Now it's time to find a job that you want to do. Pen testing is pen testing. But you could either end up pen testing for a really terrible company or a very fantastic company. And here's the good news, folks. There are literally hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs, depending on what you search for, on websites like LinkedIn for cybersecurity positions from all different sorts of companies and organizations and agencies all over the country, all over the planet. The point is you have options. Now, I'm not sure how long you have those options, 
but take advantage of your time and find a place that you really feel comfortable at because the kind of work that we do, the kind of work that's associated with cybersecurity jobs in general, the industry can be consuming in a way. It's going to take time for you to get there. And once you do, and once you find a great job or any job, you're going to spend a lot of time practicing or doing what it is that you learned. And if you're at a place that you don't like, then you're going to become extremely miserable. And there's one last point to that I want to make. Find alternate hobbies. Don't be like me where I spent, <laughs> don't be like me where I spent most of my life being a practitioner, but I can't go out and like build a birdhouse because I don't have carpentry skills. You know what I mean? Try to find things that you could do offline so that you could clear your mind and find a nice duality. And that's where I leave it off. It's nice to be passionate about what you do, but man, yeah, you get burnt out after doing it year after year after year. You know, so it's, you know, I got to be honest, I think our uh, release is being great podcaster sector. I mean, we didn't even have five important lessons to tell Ryan until we just sat here. We didn't even pre-write those. Those were great tips. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're two cool ass guys. What can I say? But, but <laughs> oh yeah, cool. You and I are known as cool. <laughs> well, we're, we're cool to our families, at least, and friends, you know? Uh, uh, no, um, I am definitely not cool to my family. No matter what I do in life, I am not cool to my kids. Are you serious? Come yeah. on, man. I would be like, dude, my dad is badass. But, you know, I guess it's different. I guess, I guess it's, it's relative, right? Because you're their dad already. So they're like, eh, it's just, it's just him being him. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're not looking to replace me, but you never know. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, oh, man. But no, these are all great points. And the one thing I, I, I kind of want to point out to the audience is that, you know, this industry is still very young. There's still a lot more that can be done. You know, I've heard conversations on like InfoSec Twitter where people are complaining about the lack of innovation. And we know what that really means. The lack of coming up with new tools and new ideas to deal with a lot of these old problems. And it's a great opportunity for anybody to come in and change the game. I'll give you an example. So I'm going to give you a, a cheat code or a cheat. Um, Wait, I hope is it up, up, down, down? No, probably not. That. No, no. <laughs> not the Konami code. But... You know, for those of you that are designers, I'll give you a, a, a kind of a, a, a pro tip on a direction that you could target. If you are a designer, it, you, you know, you went to school for designing or you have a really good knack for it. You know what the cybersecurity industry really, really is missing? Good visualizations. Okay. When you get a thousand page pen test report and it's all words and maybe a little bit of metrics, that's not very useful to a, a, a big portion of the population that are visual people, okay? Well, I'll give you another tip. This is for the, the I would say, communication majors out there and those that are really good at English and, and, and different languages. You know how many reports that I see, and including mine sometimes, where the language for uh, a, a specific vulnerability or remediation step is so convoluted in jargon regardless of how hard I try to translate it in layman's terms, that some clients might read it and it may look foreign to them. And that's not really useful either. So for those for those folks of you out there that are great at communications, great at English, start taking a look at pen test reports that are public. I know Cure53 is a security company out of Germany. They publicize their pen test reports. Start looking at those reports and rewrite it as an example. And if you could understand their concepts and you can understand what they're saying and pr produce a report that's more understandable, now you start to change the game. Now you start to disrupt uh, the current flow of the industry. So with that being said, what I'm trying to tell you guys is you don't have to be a super hacker or a genius. You don't have to be on the level of a foreign APT group or advanced persistent threat. You don't have to be a reverse engineer to really make a difference and make a difference not only in the industry, but in your own lives. So I hope that goes, uh, I hope at least I, I, I reached at least one designer, and one communications major in the audience. Those are, I'm sure you did, Hector. Uh, those are great points. So Hector, I was going to end this episode uh, with something else. Uh, I think that's a great point to end it though. I, we got a lot of uh, listener questions and listener feedback wanting me to tell my story about pissing my pants at a search warrant um for the for the Super Bowl payoff, which I won and you lost and you had to tell the story. Um but I'm not gonna <laughs> tell that story here. If we 
if we if we get ten emails from listeners asking for that by the time of the next episode, then I, I promise I will tell that story in the next episode. Um, so. <laughs> Reach out to us, questions at hackerinthefed.com. We love to do these episodes where we actually, you know, talk directly to the listeners and answer your questions. It's always the most fun for Hector and I to get on here and do these. So uh, another great episode, Hector. Uh, New episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed myself this week. Yeah, same here. Like, you know, it's always good to kind of interact with the audience and then just share our, our opinions. I think that I personally have re- I've heard people say that they would love to hear more from you. So this episode was fantastic. So cheers, my friend. Cheers, friend. <laughs>